uh, book by book. Amen. Okay, we sorted. Let's take our cues from verse 1. The Bible reads as follows. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from our God, uh, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should also be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Therefore I also after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Amen. Amen. God bless to us the reading of his word. And didn't the boys do well this morning? Yeah. Amen. Well done to Zeke and Cammy. Uh, you guys are doing us proud. And it's good to see some graduates in the building. Amen. Congratulations, guys. And it's good to see uh, my squirny uh, Vin Petrol uh, in the house. Thank God for your healing and recovery and to all our guests. And I also caught one that is Ilse's birthday this morning. Um, happy birthday, Ilse. And just a few of our folks seem to be under the weather this morning. We also keep them in our prayers and healing uh, will be their portion. Amen. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for blessing us. You've blessed us far beyond our wildest imaginations. Thank you for being the good God that you are. And if you have given us your son, your word declares it. How shall you not with him freely give us all things? And truly you've blessed us with everything that pertains to life and godliness. And this morning we come into your course to say thank you. Thank you for all your blessings. Thank you for all your spiritual blessings. Thank you for all 
the physical blessings that we enjoy, the relational blessings. Thank you for our families. Thank you for our kids. Thank you for our spouses. Thank you, Lord, for the roof over our heads, the food in our mouth, the air in our lungs. We come to say thank you. Even if you didn't bless us another day, we'll still be eternally grateful because you are our life giver. You are our blesser. You are... Uh, the one who gives every good and perfect gift and with you there is no shadow of turning you change not the times change and the seasons change and we change and we are faithless at times but you remain faithful you are constant you are the same yesterday today and forever and we give you praise and now lord as we approach your word i pray you anoint my lips Anoint me to speak as your servant this morning, as a man of God this morning, that I would disappear and Christ would appear, that his name will be glorified in Jesus' mighty name. And the church of God says, Amen and Amen. God bless you, family. We're in the book of Ephesians, and the title uh, of our message this morning is Chosen. Chosen. We're chosen in him. Amen. Amen. Before we get into the book of Ephesians, I want to let you know that understanding the Bible is not an easy task. And there's no shortcut to interpreting the scriptures. When you get into the New Testament, you will discover 27 books. You know, we have 39 in the Old, we have 27 in the New Testament. Out of the 27 books that are given to us and to the church in the New Testament, Paul wrote 13 of them. He contributed 13 books to the New Testament. And so it is only appropriate that we understand how to interpret Paul's letters. Paul did not give us any Gospels. He did not write any narratives. He did not write any apocalyptic literature. But Paul wrote specific letters to specific communities and individuals. And so we have to understand, how do we approach Pauline epistles? Because if you read Paul's letters like you'd read the Gospels, you'd read askew. If you'd read Paul's letters the way you'd read the Psalms or the Proverbs, you will read askew. You don't interpret each genre of scripture the same. And it is, very, uh, it is very dangerous to use one tool for every job. Yeah. And so when we are interpreting Paul, the first thing I want you to know is that it is difficult to understand the Apostle Paul. Because Peter himself, the Apostle, the Apostle of the Lamb, in his second epistle, wrote to the church and he said, In verse 14, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Jesus Christ in peace without spot and blemish blemish, and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. And also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom that was given to you, to him, has written to you also and his epistles uh, he's given to you as well. Speaking in them these things, which some things he says are difficult to understand. That's Peter. 
The apostle Peter walked with Jesus and said, some of the stuff that Paul writes is difficult to understand. And he says, untrained and unstable people twist his words to their own destructions as they do the rest of the scriptures. So Peter acknowledges firstly that Paul was a writer of scripture and that it is difficult to understand some of the things that Paul has taught. And he also noted that if you're untrained and unstable, you are liable to twist his teachings. And so here are a few things we need to understand when it comes to interpreting Pauline epistles. Firstly, you need to understand the genre of scripture. You wouldn't approach a fairy, a fairy tale like a historical report. If you interpret a fairy tale like a historical report, you will have some of the most profound interpretations, but you'll be totally askew. As profound and tickling to the ear it might sound, you will have totally misunderstood the fairy tale. So you have to understand that he's writing letters to specific communities in a historical time. So we have to be, take, uh, take into account that he's writing epistles, he's writing letters. Secondly, we need to understand that he wrote in a specific structure. He didn't just pick up the mic and start speaking. He wrote in a specific structure and the format and style in which Paul wrote was known as the Greco-Roman style of writing. And so how it would be structured is, he'd have an opening in his letter. And the opening of his letter would have four elements. He would name the sender, he would name himself. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, called by God and not of man. Secondly, he would name the addressees. He would name who he's writing to. And the letter would take the name of his addressees. If he's writing to the church of Ephesus, the letter will be called Ephesians. If he's writing to the church at Colossae, he would name the letter Colossians. Thirdly, he would then greet the church and say, grace and peace be unto you. And then lastly, he will give a, a prayer of thanksgiving and say, I thank God for you. Okay. Then he would get into the major section of his letter, which is known as the body. And the body is generally divided into two major parts. In every one of his letters, it's divided into the doctrinal section. And it's divided into the ethical or practical section. So in the first section, he would deal uh, with theological concepts and doctrines and major biblical themes. And then in the second half of his letter, he'll turn his attention to the home. Say, husbands, love your wives. Servants, treat your masters with love and respect. Masters, treat your servants with respect. Children, don't, don't disrespect your home. So he turned his attention to practical living because doctrine must be fleshed out practically. And once he's done dealing with the doctrinal and practical sections, he would then conclude. And he would typically conclude by mentioning his travel plans, where he's off to, or where he's come from, or where he's going. And he would mention the personal circumstances surrounding the writing of his letter. He'll say, beloved, I'm still in the bonds of chains, 
still the prisoner for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he would also commend the fellow workers that are with him. He'd say, our brother Timothy also sends his greetings. And then he would give a final instruction. And he would usually autograph his, uh, his letters uh, by saying, I've written this by my own hand. You know, or he'd give a benediction and he'll also solicit their prayer requests. And, and that's how he would typically structure every one of his epistles and letters. Then we need to thirdly reconstruct the historical set, setting because Paul wrote in history. So we need to ask important historical questions. What was the time in which Paul wrote? Who were the people that he wrote to? What was the history, the culture? What was the, the, the major events impacting uh, the community at that time because the Bible was not written to you. Yeah, yes. The Bible was written for you, but it was not written to you. Yes. There was an original audience, an immediate audience. We are the contemporary audience. And so as a preacher, the job of the preacher is to stand between two worlds. The original audience and the contemporary audience, and that's the job of every preacher. I can't just take one verse, cherry pick one verse for you and say, hey, God's going to bless you. No, I have to time travel you back to the day and time when the letter was written and the, and the book was written. And so there is a particular audience that we need to be cognizant of. One of the other things we need to take into account when interpreting scripture, and especially Pauline epistles, is that he used specific liter literary devices and, 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 and tools. And he used something called indicatives and imperatives. Don't get worried out there, family. Stay with me. <laughs> We have the Podbean, we have the Podbean app, so you just go back and listen. If you don't have the Podbean, God forgive you, just replay over and over. He used something called indicatives and imperatives, and these are the substructure of his theology. And when we refer to indicatives, we are talking about uh, what facts are stated. So when, when you hear, I'm just going to simplify. When we talk about indicatives, we are talking about what facts are stated. In our, theologically speaking, what God has already done. Yeah. What he is doing and what he's going to do. When we speak of imperatives, we are speaking about commands that he gives us. And so between Paul's writings, you, you will see that he uses indicatives and imperatives. He speaks about what God has done, what God is doing, what God's going to do, and then he speaks about imperatives, what we need to do, how we need to obey. Every, don't miss this, please don't miss this, every imperative rests on an indicative. God never tells you to obey until he shows you what he's already done for you. You think when God asks you to believe in him, he didn't do it on the premise that he first believed in you. And when he gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, before he gives them that ten, those ten points of imperatives, the first thing he does is tell them about the indicative. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and bondage. This is what I've done for you. Now do this for me. Come on, 
And you see that repeated over and over and over throughout the scriptures, not even just in Pauline epistles or in Ephesians. You find it scattered throughout the Bible. Even in Romans 2, the Bible says it's the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. The indicative, the goodness of God. The, the imperative, you come to repentance. And so we need to look for indicatives and imperatives. And it's interesting that between chapter 1 and chapter 3, Ephesians is filled with the most indicatives. And he's telling us in that doctrinal section what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And then from chapter 4 to 6, he gets practical and he tells us what we need to do in obedience to God. And so in Ephesians 5, an example, he says, verse 8, For you were sometime in darkness, but now you are in the light. Therefore walk as children of the light. We need to also pay attention to parenthesis because Paul writes very parenthetical. He'll say something like, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The phrase through his blood is a parenthesis. And so all his letters are very parenthetical. They're full of commas and pauses and, and parentheses are there to either clarify or enhance something that's being said or add some detail to what's being said. And so we have to pay attention to this information because it provides us with detail. And he wants us to know that he didn't just uh, 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 redeem us, but he wants you to know what was the price. It was his blood. Paul also makes use of a literary device called a diatribe. That's when he presents almost a, an opponent in a conversational setting in his writings. So uh, he used that example in Romans 9 as well, where he's talking and discussing about how God has chosen us before the foundations of the earth. And then he goes on and he says, but who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Yeah. Sure. And he is, he, he, he speaks in, in diatribe in this way. Uh, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's having a conversation with some imaginary uh, person and he says, certainly not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he wrote in a conversational diatribe form and then he also wrote in what's called paranesis, general advisory exhortations, a general tone that is used to address specific issues. Another feature used commonly in his epistles, he cites a lot of hymns and a lot of confessional statements. So 1 Timothy 3 verse 16, where the Bible says, For without controversy, grace, uh, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh, you know, born in the spirit, uh, received up in, in, in the spirit, and, uh, and believed on amongst the world and preached on amongst the Jews. That's a hymn. That is a confessional hymn. And you'll find the hymns and the traditional material cited in Ephesians 5.14, Philippians 2, verse 6 to 11. Uh, Let this mind be new, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider Robbie to be equal with God, but humbled himself and, and came in the likeness of a man, you know, and, and became obedient even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him. That's a hymn. In Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is a hymn. Romans 1, 3 to 4, a hymn. Ephesians 3 to 14 is a hymn. We're going to get there in a moment. <laughs> okay. One of the important things also about understanding Paul's letters is we have to be able to trace the structure of his argument. We have to trace the line of reasoning because he talks in all these superlatives and he's just, he's, his pen is just flowing like a river. Like, you know, he's just writing and writing and writing and back then there weren't no chapters and verses to delineate what he's saying. So he just wrote and wrote and wrote. And wrote. So you have to start trace back what was he talking about first and trace his theme and make sure you stick with the theme and one thing that helps us trace the theme is uh, you know taking you back to English here is prepositions the prepositions he uses and in Ephesians he uses a lot of prepositions a preposition is a word uh, or group of words that is used before a noun or a pronoun or a noun phrase and usually prepositions show direction, they show time, place, location, spatial relationships, they introduce an object. Uh, an example of a preposition would be the terms like, uh, no, sorry, in, at, on, of. And so in Ephesians you'll see so many prepositions that give us an, an idea of what Paul's trying to communicate. Uh, so in Ephesians you'll note by the, the terms by, through, in Christ, you know, for his the praise of his glory. An example of this would be Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10. For by grace yeah. you have been saved through faith. Yeah. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Least anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. These are referred to as the prepositions of salvation. You are saved by his grace through faith. Faith was the channel for your salvation, not the source. It was the channel. It's his grace that says by grace. And so prepositions show relationship between nouns. And Paul uses a ton load of them. So it's important to observe when he's using propositions. It helps you to trace his line of thinking. And then lastly, Paul's writing is full and heavy and dense with syntax. He uses a lot of wording. And so you have to be willing to define the terms. Define the words. Get out a Bible dictionary. Get out a, a commentary. Don't pick up the Oxford dictionary to get meaning for biblical terms please that's a belief <laughs> okay so in summary you have to understand genre the structure the historical setting the lit literary forms and devices he uses indicatives imperatives imperatives diatribes paranesis hymns and confessional statements you have to be able to trace his line of reasoning and prepositions help and lastly you need to be able to define the terms amen Okay, now as, a, as we look over the entire book of Ephesians, let's do an overview quickly. We said that Paul wrote 13 letters out of the collection of 27 books in the New Testament. Okay, and they can be classified into three groups. And I'm going to group them in chronological order. Firstly, he wrote what's called travel letters. Okay, first and second Thessalonians 
Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Romans are what's grouped as his travel letters. Secondly, he wrote prison letters. These letters he wrote from a prison cell in Rome. Uh, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, and Philippians. And you find these are written generally at the same time. And then lastly, you get his pastoral letters. He wrote to his spiritual sons, Timothy and Titus. Nine of them are addressed to churches out of his 13 letters. Uh, the rest, the four of them are addressed to specific individuals. He wrote the letter of, of, uh, to the Ephesians while he was in the prison in a prison cell in Rome at about AD uh, 62. And at the time that he wrote the epistle to the uh, Ephesian church, he wrote the epistle to, to the church at Colossian, uh, Colossae as well. And so you'll find there's a strong similarity between the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians. Okay, very strong. And most of the verses are actually identical, the parallel thinking and thoughts. What is the purpose for which he wrote uh, the book of Ephesians? Because Paul wrote, um, usually he wrote in a way that he responded to issues that were happening in the church. Um, so it, we call this uh, theologically occasional letters. Uh, something gave reason for him wanting to write to the church. And often he would write to address these issues or heresies or attacks of misunderstandings uh, or theological issues in the church. But when we pick up the book of Ephesians, it appears that there is no specific reason or issue he's having to deal with. And so Ephesians is categorized as an unoccasional letter. It just seemed like he wanted to exhort and generally encourage the church. Ephesians has three predominant themes. Firstly, Ephesians teaches us and reminds us that Christ has reconciled all of creation to himself and to God. Secondly, that Christ has not only united uh, all of us in himself to God, but he has also united us together and broken down the middle wall of separation. He's united people from all nations and tongue and tribe to himself and to each other because uh, you cannot be in good standing with God and in bad standing with one another. And lastly, he writes to state that we as believers must continue to walk and live as a new creation. We must live and walk as a new creation. There must be a change in your life. There must be a change in your behavior. There must be a change in your thinking. There must be a change in your value system. There must be a change. No change, no Jesus. No change, no Jesus. What is the evidence of your faith? What is the evidence that Jesus lives inside of you? There's another theme that's often overlooked. And it's the theme of love in Ephesians because the term love appears frequently. In Ephesians 1 verse 4, the Bible says God chose us in Christ in love. Secondly, if, uh, in Ephesians 3 verse 17, he says that we should be rooted and grounded in love. In Ephesians 4 verse 2, he says bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 4 verse 15, speaking the truth in love. You don't just speak the truth. You speak the truth in love. 
Because truth without love is brutality. Yeah. But love without truth is hypocrisy. So there must be a balance of truth and love. So when you speak the truth, speak it in love. And we're seeing this in our thought, you know, in this culture we're living in that, you know, just love and tolerate. No. What is the truth? And the truth offends, unfortunately. And lastly, in Ephesians 4, verse 16, he says, building up the body of Christ in love. Ephesians 5, verse 2, sorry, last one, walk in love. And if you know the church and have studied the church at Ephesus, they were a church known for their love for God and their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when they had backslidden, when they had turned their, their backs on God and allowed false teachers into their church, and to infiltrate the teachings of, of the church, John the Apostle wrote in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, and he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned your first love. Amen. Now, quickly, what's important for us uh, to understand theologically before we get into our sermon, we haven't got into our sermon yet. <laughs> okay, before we get into our sermon, I'm going to present to you a theological uh, discussion that has been going on behind the veil, which you may or may not be aware of. Okay, this is what theologians have debated since the 1500s. Hundreds. It's the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. Okay. Uh, don't get lost, uh, my teenage uh, nieces, don't get lost, okay? Calvinism and Arminianism, okay? So Calvinism and Arminianism are two systems of theology that attempt to explain uh, God's sovereignty and man's free will in relation to salvation. The theological term for the doctrine of salvation is soteriology, okay? And so, where these teachings of systems come from, uh, firstly, Calvinism comes from John Calvin. He was a French theologian in the 1500s. He lived between 1509 to 1564. And Arminianism is named after Jacobus Arminius, who was a Dutch theologian, in, uh, also in the 1500s, between uh, 1560 and 1609. And both systems of theology are typically summarized in five points, okay? Five points. And... Uh, uh, when I present this to you, it's going to spark. Uh, uh, it's going to spark a lot of theological tension, and tension is good because tension may encourage you to seek out the truth <laughs> for yourself. Okay. Um, many believers have sometimes mixed the systems and said, "No, that point doesn't. It's difficult to embrace." Uh, so, so you'll often hear of a five-point Calvinist. We have a three-point Calvinist. And so some people are still working it out. But let me just preface um, this by saying that uh, systems, if you embrace certain systems fiercely, they can create some kind of tribalism. You know, yeah. like, hey, this is what I believe you of that camp, I'm of that camp. So my stance uh, on Calvinism and Arminianism is this. Let's throw away, uh, let's throw away the systems. Uh, and, and I'm going to explain uh, f further in, in, in a few minutes. Okay, so the first point uh, when it comes to Calvinism is the point of total depravity. That Calvinists believe that people are totally depraved and rebellious and are unable to trust God. They are unable to trust God unless he offers them grace. Arminians believe 
with regards to the depravity. There are people, yes, are depraved and corrupt, um, but they are able to provide decisive impulse to God. They can trust God still on, on their own. Uncondi- the second point is unconditional election. Okay, uh, this is where we start to get controversial. Okay, unconditional election. Calvinists believe that we are chosen by God, and God chooses us unconditionally, um, not based on His foreknowledge of whether we'll give our lives to Him. They believe that God sovereignly, by His good pleasure, chose you, not because you, He looked down the ages and centuries and said, you're gonna, If I call you, you're going to come. No, He chose you according to His good pleasure and His free will. Arminians believe that, yes, God has chosen us, but He, foresaw, he had foreseen who would believe and He would bring them to faith. The third point between Calvinists and Arminianists is Calvinists believe in what's called limited atonement. This is where we get a little bit more controversial. Because Calvinists believe, yes, Jesus died for the whole world, but effectively, he only died for the elect. Those that he has chosen before the foundations of the earth. Arminians believe that the atonement is unlimited. And everybody can come and receive grace. The fourth point is irresistible grace. Calvinists believe that the grace of God, when it's extended to you, cannot be refused. You cannot refuse it. If you are the elect, the elect are called and come and believe. Arminius believe that the grace of God is offered to everyone without merit, however, God has given us the freedom to resist His grace. And lastly, you have uh, the point of the perseverance of the saints. So what Calvinists believe is, um, is, is that if you are elect, elect, the elect of God, you cannot permanently deny Christ or turn away from Him. You shall be saved. Uh, I'll explain it in a a few moments. And what Arminianists believe is that uh, they believe in conditional salvation is that believers have a free will and can turn from Christ and uh, lose their salvation. So what Calvinists are saying is, look, if you serve the Lord, choose to serve Him. And for most of your life, let's use that example, and let's say for the last two or three hours of your life, you turn your back from God or or you backslid and you don't make it into heaven, you were never part of the elect in the first place. That's what they believe. Okay. Ooh, getting myself in trouble here this morning. <laughs> Concluding thoughts. Firstly, it's valuable for us to understand the differences between the two because our denominations are influenced by them. Baptists, Reformers, Pentecostals are influenced by these systems whether you know it or not. Okay. And it's probably one of the reasons why you won't see an altar call in a Baptist church. And the reason why you'll see one in a Pentecostal church. Okay. So my opinion is, each system does not cancel each other out. They are fundamentally two sides of the same coin. Truth is not one-dimensional. Truth is multifaceted. Multifaceted. And layered. And so God sovereignly chose you. 
this is, this is my position. God sovereignly chose you, but He still requires you to choose Him. Yes. Some of you are going to walk out with a headache this morning. <laughs> he sovereignly chose you before the foundations of the earth, but He still requires you to choose Him. Trying to explain the inexplicable will give you headaches. And we're talking about a being that is otherworldly. None of us with all our intellect can confine God by our reasoning. And people who adopt these systems, uh, need to, we need to be very careful in how we present them to people. Okay. Now let's get to reconstructing the historical setting uh, of, of uh, the letter of Ephesians and then we'll, and then we'll come back to our point on on God's election. Okay, firstly, you know that Paul wrote a letter. He wrote it from prison, a prison in Rome. Same time, he wrote a letter to Colossians. He wrote a letter, a letter to Philemon and, and, and to Timothy. Okay, the city of Ephesus, the name Ephesus means desirable because it was a desirable city. Okay, it was one of the largest cities in Asia Minor when the Roman Empire ruled. They, Ephesus served as a senatorial Roman state and it was the center for commerce and communication. So Ephesus was a prime spot for evangelism. And Paul was very strategic when he planted churches because he knew that if he planted churches where there were a lot of traffic, the gospel message could move more rapidly. It wasn't just planting churches anywhere in Timbuktu. He was very strategic. And so um, there are three major roads that lead out from the seaport at Ephesus. One that led, uh, led out eastward towards the Babylon and Laodicean area. Another north to Smyrna. And thirdly, another via the Meander Valley. Okay, today Ephesus is, is located towards the west coast of modern Turkey. Uh, Strabo, uh, a historian, recounts that Around uh, 1,100 BC, the land was previously occupied by Amazons. So Ephesus uh, was previously, 1,001 years before Christ was occupied by Amazons. Okay? And then it was the Ionians, the Greek Ionians, who uh, were led by Androlycus, who was um, you know, a, a warrior king, uh, uh, not a warrior king, a, a warrior a soldier, uh, of the legendary king of Athens. Okay, so they came and drove out the Amazons uh, from Ephesus. And when they did, they made Ephesus a Greek city. And they founded this new city called e Ephesus. And what the Greeks did was they adopted uh, their native god, uh, which was uh, uh, Anatolian, the mother goddess. And what they did was they, uh, they renamed the mother god, uh, Artemis. Okay? And so uh, the Greek god and the god of Ephesus became uh, the god, uh, mother goddess Artemis. And so uh, Anatolia uh, evolved into Artemis. And so the new city was founded and the Greeks had now adopted this, this new god uh, and and. The goddess Artemis had become the gods of the Greek world. And they established in Ephesus 
um, what became one of the seven wonders of the world, it was the Temple of Artemis. And so there were two main attractions, or we could say three, in the city of Ephesus. Firstly, it was its harbor, okay? It was a seaport. Secondly, it was its temple uh, to Artemis. It was literally 115 meters by, by 55 meters in, in measurement and diameter, and it had 127 giant columns made of white marble. This entire temple was made of white marble, and the world pilg made pilgrimage to uh, Ephesus to come and worship this goddess called Artemis. And the last uh, feature of Ephesus was the uh, two-story theater was which was erected in the time of Nero, which could see 24,000 people. And so Ephesus was a desirable city. A desirable city. But we don't have an idea of how fervent and devoted the followers of Artemis were. They were radical about the worship of Artemis. And when the Roman Empire took over, uh, Anatolia, or which was named Artemis, evolved again. And they started calling her Diana. And so they were zealous about the worship of Diana or Artemis, and it became a huge industry for those who were sculpting idols. And so when Paul gets into Ephesus, he gets into Ephesus on his third missionary journey. He has four, okay? Three of, us is, three of it is recorded in scripture, and then Paul alludes to the fourth missionary trip um, in one of his letters in, 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 I think it's the book of Romans, okay? So what, what we need to understand about Paul's missionary trips is that, firstly, in to throughout all the missionary trips of, um, of the... Apostle Paul, he traveled over 26,000 kilometers, over four missionary trips, over 26,000 kilometers, and most of it was on foot. His fourth missionary journey to Ephesus was 2,500 kilometers over land on foot and donkey. That's how serious this brother was about preaching the gospel. Some of us can't walk across the street to our neighbor and say, come to church. <laughs> this brother walked to Cape Town and back, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was serious about the gospel. And so when he gets to the city of Ephesus, he spends roughly between two and three years in the city teaching the gospel to the folk. One of the longest times he spent in a city was at Ephesus. And so when he writes his letter, you can see he's writing to a matured people. He's not breaking down and explaining these theological terms. No. He knows what he's talking about. They understand because this is a mature church. I suppose that's why they have three years Bible school. <laughs> Some of us come out of Bible school still illiterate. <laughs> hey, man, I was, when I was in Bible school some years ago, uh, we learned... Hey, we learn hey, so much of the Bible. We get out of Bible school, and this uh, student that was with me comes out a few months down the line. He backslides. I'm like, God, dude, you backslide after we come out of Bible school. <laughs> Come on, man. You know? But anyway, three years teaching, and the Bible says he had such success at Ephesus. 
the church grew and flourished, became a vitally strong church. Their vital signals were strong. And the Bible says God did in Acts chapter 19 unusual miracles by the hand of Paul. That even his sweaty handkerchiefs were passed around to bring healing to the, to the sick. But with great success comes great opposition. It's something we forget in the 21st century as believers. And so while he has this great success in preaching the gospel, he's met with even greater opposition because the silversmith by the name of Demetrius rises up against him and gathers the whole city together and his tradesmen and he says, this guy is running us out of business. Nobody's coming to buy idols anymore because, because this guy is, is turning our world upside down. And so the Bible says, he, in Acts chapter 19, Demetrius gathers the whole city to the, to the theater, that two-story theater. And he causes a huge riot. And Paul had to escape for his life. Several months later, Paul makes his way over to Macedonia. And when the dust is settled in AD 57, he sends a message to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he says, come meet me nearby the island of Miletus. And he gives them his farewell address in Acts chapter 20. And he reminds these elders to continue with the good work. <laughs> he reminds them of his ministry at Ephesus. And then he tells them of his intention to go to Rome. And then he warns them of false teachers. And uh, Clinton warned us uh, in one connect group of false teachers and teaching. And it's something that we have forgot in our belief system as believers, that there are false teachers and false teaching going around and it is rife. And then he commended them to God and he prayed with them and he said that he is no longer going to see them again because Paul understood that his life was short. And then after a decade, after having met with the, church, with the elders, planted the church, Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. And he writes it in such a tone that you can see he's encouraged by their faith. They're well organized. They are multi-ethnic church. You know, he says, grace be with you all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. That's in Ephesians chapter 6, 24. He's encouraged to hear that they're thriving. But then by the time of 1 Timothy, when he writes 1 Timothy, about two or three years later, there's a change and a shift that develops at the church of Ephesus. And where he writes to uh, Timothy, because Timothy became the overseer at Ephesus. In chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, uh, Timothy, as I've urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach these strange doctrines. Yeah. And he says, nor should they, anyone pay attention to these myths and endless genealogies and, and pay attention to the rise of these specula speculative doctrines uh, rather than the administration of God, which is by faith. And then tradition tells us that in the late 60s, 
the church was infiltrated by false teachers. And that's when John the Apostle has his revelation of Jesus Christ. And he writes and he rebukes the church, the Lord Jesus, and says, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. You've lost your first love. Now let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And let's take our cues from verse 3. Now Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and he exclaims, he bursts out in a hymn of praise and he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is being both declarative and suggestive. In other words, he's saying that he is blessed. He is blessed. But he's implying and suggesting that we praise him because he's blessed us. And so the original Greek term that he uses here means to speak well of. But it's a term in scripture that is not once referred to in relation to men, only to God. He says, Bless, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's telling us in not so many words that you cannot think a praise. You need to speak a praise. You need to speak well of him. That's why we can't come into worship and just... Yeah, yeah. It's not good enough to think of praise. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Because some things in the kingdom of God is voice activated. If all you do is sit back and say, and think in your head, I praise you, Lord. I love you, Lord. No. God says, as long as you have a mouth to speak, praise Him. Because when your team is losing, you're screaming. Your favorite soccer team, when Manchester United is losing, you're screaming and you're shouting and you're going on like a maniac. But when you come into the presence of God, you're all reserved and you, you, you remember your manners. <laughs> Somebody say, ouch. <laughs> this phrase, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, was only used to refer to God. And Paul's intentional when he uses the term because he's conveying to us that there's only one who's worthy. There's only one that's worth our praise. Not Moses, not Abraham, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not the Pope, not your spiritual papa, not your chief apostle. There is only one to be blessed. As the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about verse 3 is that Paul here is being emphatic about the nature of God. He says, blessed be the Lord, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Blessed be the God and Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He's being emphatic about that. The fact that God blesses. 
He's a blesser. He pours out blessings every day. But he wants us to fix our minds and hearts on a specific kind of blessing. So he says that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessings. He blesses us physically and, and naturally with many things. But he's saying, take your eyes away from that for a moment and let's talk about the spiritual blessings. Because we're so fixed on what we don't have materially that we forget that we have been blessed with every kind of spiritual blessing. All we do as a church is trusting God for jobs and cars and houses and promotions and, and a G-star, sneaker, and jacket. And Paul is saying, take your mind off for a moment of all these earthly blessings because they're spiritual blessings that outweigh all of us. Because what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And all we preoccupied about is our financial freedom. What about your soul, ma'am? What about the forgiveness of sins? What about your redemption? What about the filling of the Holy Spirit? All we out here doing is chasing jobs and cars and nice things. Have you been saved and washed by the blood of the Lamb? The key, the key to the entire book of Ecclesiastes is verse 3. Because everything he does from there is unravel all the blessings. Ephesians. Uh, sorry, Ephesians uh, chapter 1 verse 3. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 stretches out the entire theme and framework for the letter of Ephesians. And not only that, uh, verse 3 unpacks the next few verses, which is known as the symphony of salvation. Because notice, Paul's typical way of writing, and that's why I read verse 15 to you, and from verse 1, and our text is from 3 to 14, but notice that Paul would typically first give a thanksgiving and a greeting to the church, and then start writing that what he does here, what he does here is that he first gives us an outburst of praise. This is a hymn. And he goes on to say, almost as though he's singing, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and, and, and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to the adoption as by sons, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And he goes on and on and on. And, on. and what's the interesting thing about this passage uh, in the Greek, and I was reading a, a Dean's status uh, he had a picture of an ESV Bible. Pastor Israel told you guys to get ESV Bibles, study Bibles. And he had an ESV study Bible. And he opened up the front page uh, of Ephesians. And I'm like, ooh, this guy got my sermon notes here. <laughs> you know? In the Greek, and I hope you read that section. I hope you read that section. Again. In the Greek, verses 3 to 14 in the Greek is one sentence. Yeah. It's a translator's nightmare. 
when they come to Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, it is one long sentence of 202 words in the Greek. No commas, no hyphen, no spaces. Just one sentence. Like Paul just in rapid fire speed, just let go and just praising God. Like just whole conglomeration of words. And when a translator comes to us, like what on earth is going on with Paul? Why does he do this? It's my opinion that he's trying to overwhelm us and trying to communicate to us that God is over the top lavish and magnanimous in the way he gives. And so he gives us this hymn of praise. Some people refer to it as a doxology, a eulogy, but a doxology is an expression and tribute of praise to God. So what it does from verse 3, verse 3 is key and leads us into the next few verses. But verse 3, when he mentions spiritual blessings, he then begins to catalog them. From verse 4, 5, 6, 7, right down to 14, he catalogs and lists all the spiritual blessings. You've been elected before the foundations of the earth. You've been predestined. Those are blessings. You've been predestined to the adoptions by my sons as Jesus Christ. You have been redeemed in Christ. You have received the forgiveness of sins. It's a spiritual blessing. And you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise and you have a spiritual inheritance. These are all spiritual blessings. But what does Paul does in this doxology, in this hymn of praise, in this song that he's writing, he gives us and unpacks for us some of the weightiest theological themes in the whole of scripture in a song of praise. Talks about divine election in a song. And he's ingenuously communicating to us that our doxology should always be informed by our doctrine. You cannot separate doctrine from doxology. In other words, in layman's terms, it's important what you believe. Because what you believe informs and impacts on how you worship. And sometimes we get caught up, you know, with all the cliches in Christendom. You know, we say, no, brother, it's not enough. Uh, it's, it's not enough just to quote the Bible, you know. You can know thousands of scriptures, but hey, just as long as you worship. No, 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 no. Yeah. A part of it is true. But hey, don't undermine the importance of knowing the truth. And understanding the truth. Because if you go around thinking that God is all loving and gracious and you don't punish the wicked. And that's your theology. And, you say, and you're singing, God loves, God loves. And then when God punishes the wicked. It affects how you perceive God. Because you haven't, you haven't understood Him well. And understood truth well. So it's important that we, we never separate doctrine from doxology. The only way to tackle and handle this conglomerate of words and this hymn that Paul gives us from 3 to 14 is to look at it from what scholars refer to as the Trinitarian framework. And this is where I'm going to be closing very soon for some of you that's worried about Sunday lunch. <laughs> okay. So you see the Father mentioned between verses 4 and 6. You see the Son mentioned between verses 7 and 14, and then you see the Holy Spirit mentioned between 13 and 14, okay? So we're going to quickly look at um, 
this section, this hymn, this doxology in those three points. The Father as is revealed in election. From verses 4 to 6 and let's read that. For he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and without blame. In other words, your salvation is not an afterthought. Did you get that? Your salvation is not an afterthought. Now, I'm going to say this also as a kind of precursor to, to everything I'm going to say here because I'm going to touch back on Calvinism and Arminianism. Okay? Because when the Bible says, and Paul says, that he chose us in him before the foundations of the earth, that means God chose you to be saved and redeemed before he even said, let there be light. Before Jesus even went to the cross and died. And in some way in eternity past, God decreed and chose you. And so I'm going to preface this by saying that there are four kinds of people when it comes to relation to salvation, in relation to salvation. Firstly, there are those who are unsaved and don't know that they are unsaved. Secondly, there are those that are unsaved and know that they are unsaved. Thirdly, there are those who are saved and know they are saved. And lastly, there are those who are unsaved who know or think they are saved. <laughs> okay? This is how salvation works. God chose you, and you would have not chosen Him unless He had chosen you. Not in all your wishful thinking and desires, in your depraved state, in your humanity. None of us have had the affection to serve God. I'm standing up here, and as a testimony, I had no desire to serve God. But he sparks that desire in you first. He enables grace. But he enables grace, but he does not do the believing for you. You have to believe. You have to come to repentance. And you have to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work, sanctifying work in you. And so, between verses 4 and 6, we have stepped into a theo- or onto a theological minefield. What Paul is speaking about here is very controversial. But with our approach to the scriptures and expository preaching, I can't just skip over these verses and tell you about how you is workmanship, <laughs> creator yeah. for good works. Yeah. We have to talk about what's in the text, yeah. whether we like it or not. And I have to be extremely careful here. I have to be like a surgeon, a heart transplant surgeon here. (laughs) Because the last thing I want to do is misrepresent who God is. And so let's establish some important groundwork here. Firstly, we are all undeserving of His grace. Every last one of you, as good a person you are in this world, you are undeserving. And none of us are entitled to salvation. None of us. Not a single one of us. As cute as my little babies are. They are not entitled to salvation. And if he left us in our rebellion and depravity, he would be justified in doing so. Can I get an amen? Because none of us deserve it. 
And that wouldn't change the fact that he's good. Not for one moment. And so if he decided not to choose you, that would not imply for a moment that he's unjust. He would be just in doing so. It's a marvel to me that he chooses us anyway. If he left most of the masses in their sins and rebellion and he just saved you, yeah, and the whole world, that would not make him unfair and unjust. It would be a marvel that he considered to save us anyway. But note between verses 12 and 13. So you have verses 4 to 6 where Paul says he chose us before the foundation of the earth. But notice verse 12 and 13 that Paul writes that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation in whom also you have believed. Now he speaks to our responsibility that we have believed. And so God chooses and we chooses. There is no way of us knowing who the elect are until we get to heaven. The elect cannot be deceived. The Bible says, in fact, if it were possible in the last days, the elect would be deceived. But it's not possible for the elect to be deceived because they have been chosen and set aside by God before the foundations of the earth to be in Christ. You never decide to be with him unless he's first decided you to be with him. And one of the most difficult questions a preacher can be, can be asked repeatedly is that if God chose a select few people to be redeemed, doesn't this leave us at the mercy of an arbitrary God? God that can do whatever he wants. God that can be unfair and unjust. Doesn't this make God unfair? Wouldn't it be a mistake to look at God in this way? Firstly, when we talk about being arbitrary, as someone who doesn't care about the law and violates the law, firstly, you must understand that there is no law that governs God. God is the law. <laughs> we can be arbitrary. Because there are laws we violate and can violate and we violate his law. But there's no one that he has to report to. He does everything according to his good pleasure. This is a hard pull to swallow. But you don't get to stand in the face of God and say, what you did there was wrong. Oh, you'd make a grave mistake. And that's what the people were accusing Paul of teaching. He says, what, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? That he chooses one over another? And what was Paul's response? Paul said, God said in Exodus 30, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And compassion on whom I'll have compassion. I do what I want. But to come back to the question, does this make God arbitrary? That's not the, the testimony of scripture. Because God is reliable and faithful to his word. Not arbitrary. 
And we see that over and over and over again. First John 1 verses 1 to 5, John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested in Jesus Christ. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father has been manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard and declare to you that which you have also have relationship with us truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ and these things are right to you that your joy may be filled and this is the message that we have heard from him and we declare to you that god is light and in him there is no darkness at all and the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 6, For when God had made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, by no higher law, he swore by himself, saying, Surely in blessing I will bless you, in multiplying I will multiply you. And so afterwards, when you have patiently endured and obtained the promise, for men have come and sworn by, by the greater and, and an oath for confirmation is for them and end of all disputes. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for him to lie. Now we come to our second point. Jesus is revealed in redemption, verses 7 to 12. Now we get a little less complex and complicated. But I want to ask you the question this morning. If the Father chose you to be in Jesus before the foundations of the earth, before Jesus was even crucified, how far back in the mind of God were you? How much must you mean to the Father that before the dawn of time, He was thinking about you? Thinking about your salvation. And He chose you that you would experience Christ and be adopted as my sons and experience forgiveness, how much must he love you? And so the Bible says in verses 7, I'm going to move along quickly, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And how rich is his grace? Notice the prepositional phrase that's repeated over and over. Let's start from verse 7. In him, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Note the phrase again in verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to, to, to the purpose which he called us. And notice verse 13. In him, you also trusted. And in verse 10 as well, you know, that he reconciled all things, uh, both things which in heaven and earth, in him, in him. What is Paul trying to convey to us? That all that the Father has in mind for you and every blessing that he has for you comes by way of Jesus Christ. And when he uses the phrase, uh, prepositional phrase, in Christ, when I look at it, I like to read it this way. 
when the Bible says, in him we have redemption through his blood, in relationship with Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. In obedience to Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. All these spiritual blessings come by Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ alone. No other way. No other way. That's why Paul says in Acts 17, in him we live, move, and have our being. And that's why in Philippians 2, he declares, by what things were gained to me, these things I've counted but lost for Jesus Christ. Yet I, I indeed, I also count these things lost, all things lost, that I may gain the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And scripture says in verse 7 that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, which he purposed in himself. And then you'll note verse 4, if we go back to verse 4, it says, just as the Father chose us in him before the foundations of the earth, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In other words, he does not just call us to be redeemed. He calls us to be holy and blameless before him. He does not just call us to be redeemed and forgiven. He calls us to be sanctified. He does not intend just to justify you, but to sanctify you. Justification is the act of God whereby God announces that a sinner has been made righteous because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Sanctification is the process by where God sets you apart from the world and its system. And you embrace the Holy Spirit and the Word of God in your life and you begin to walk in obedience to the Word of God. And so God saves you and chooses you to be saved, to be justified and sanctified because it's not His intention to save you only and forgive you only. It is, it's His intention to work inside of our lives and hearts. And so justification is a one-time event, but sanctification is a process. And sometimes as believers, we don't allow the Holy Spirit to work out the self His salvation in our lives. And, you know, where, where I grew up, uh, you know, we, we all, it was like a move of God. Everybody got saved. And while people were getting saved, some people were, were backsliding, you know, and, and turning away from, from Christ. And so... Someone made a comment, and it's a joke, and it's actually not a nice joke, and they said, hey, you know, there's a saying uh, in our community, uh, when the colored brothers get saved, you must just shoot them. So they can just die and go to heaven. Because the moment it comes to working out your salvation, they falter. And I understand that God's plan of redemption is not just to get you into heaven. His intention for your life is that you will live a life set apart from this world. And you'll walk through this world, like First Peter says, like a pilgrim and a stranger. Because you are a citizen of heaven. And lastly, 
From verses 13 to 14, we have the spirit in sanctification. The Bible reads as follows, In him you have also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. God does not just save you and leave you there. He puts his Holy Spirit in you. Amen. Seals you with his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in your life becomes the indicative. Yes. The reality of what God has done in you. And God, God's Spirit has been given to God's people. So that through God's word, God's world might come to God's Son. And so he's been given, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. What is a seal? A seal is an identifying mark. What is a seal? A seal communicates security. We'll see this in Matthew 27 and Revelations 22 verse 10. A seal is a mark of authentication. In other words, we know that you are an authentic Christian if you have the Holy Spirit working in your life. Not if you speak in tongues. If the Holy Spirit is producing His fruit in your life. What is a seal? A seal communicates ownership, protection, authentication and relationship. What is the seal in Ephesians 1? The seal is not a what. The seal is who. The Holy Spirit is the believer's seal. He seals his people with his own spirit that he will indwell in them and take up residence in their lives. And in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30, Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed with against the day of redemption. How do we grieve the Spirit? We grieve Him when we allow sin in our lives. When we allow unrepentant sin in our lives. When we restrict Him from His sanctifying work in our hearts. And that's my encouragement to you this morning, church. Can we stand? He chose you. He redeemed you. And He seals you. And he did this all for the sake of love. All for the sake of love. Maybe I close, let's, let's pray. Father, help us never to get to that place that the church of Ephesus got to when you said you have one fault against them. They have lost their first love. Help us never to lose our love and zeal for you. Help us to make our calling and election sure. That if we decide to serve you and call upon your name and repent, that we will genuinely serve you to our last breath.
And so this morning I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will begin to work on each and every single one of our hearts. Help us appreciate that marvelous truth that you chose us before the foundations of the earth. That you are mindful of us and that you loved us before we were even born. I pray that you ground us in this truth. Ground us in your love. Ground us in your word. And help us to give you the praise and appreciation for all your spiritual blessings. Each and every single day. In Jesus name. Everybody says amen. Amen. God bless you family. Oh, communion. <laughs> Thank you so much for the reminder. Okay. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, you all have the emblems before you. As we remember and reflect on what Jesus Christ has done, it was no small sacrifice. And so if you could just lift the emblems. Father, we thank you for the reminder of what you've done for us and that you sent your only begotten Son to save a wretch like me. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for your blood that has not lost its power. That your blood still washes our sins as far as the east is to the west. That you put our sins in the sea of forgetfulness. That you've loved us with this everlasting love. That you wrote our name in the Lamb's book of life. Thank you. We rejoice in our salvation this morning. And we thank you for your shed blood. We thank you for your body that was broken. We thank you that even though you came into the world and the world did not receive you. You said you gave to each one who has received you the power and the right to be called children of God. And so we appreciate your sacrifice. And we take the these emblems that you have blessed in remembrance of what you've done and in that glorious light and view of your coming again, that you are coming again for a bride that is without spot and blemish. So we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody says, Amen. You may eat and, and drink. Amen. Amen. receive the benediction now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and presents us faultless before his throne with exceeding joy to the only wise God be all glory honor power and dominion both now and forevermore and the church of Christ says amen, amen. God bless you amen hey thanks Kina.